Vyasa. So this afternoon we're going to cross to the threshold into another domain, another mode of meditation, which is not shamatha and is not vipassana. Uh, and it's a very unusual type of meditation in the sense that it is not meditation. Because it's not doing anything at all, which, as His Holiness says, is not so easy. One can talk about it, though. One can point it out. It's not complicated. Cowherders can do it. Cowherders can do it. Even business people can do it. It's very simple. And that is, as long as we're striving for anything, Shamatha, bodhicitta, enlightenment, a better job, anything. As long as we're striving, we're acting from the platform of being a sentient being. Because Buddhas don't strive. They're effortless. They're infinitely active, but it's all spontaneous actualization. As effortless as it is for the moon to cast another reflection if a new, new uh, how do you say, body of water appears. There was no, no re- there was no reflection, right? And then somebody fills a pool, and suddenly there's water, and then suddenly, oh, there, there's, there's, look, 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 there's a reflection of the moon. How much effort was it for the moon to cast that reflection after having already cast a hundred thousand reflections? How much, how much more effort? Well, that's the activity of a Buddha, as effortless as it is for the moon to cast its reflection in the water, right? So, and with no striving, no desire, no aspiration. Hmm? And so as long as we're striving, we're activating the mind of a sentient being. And as long as we're activating the mind of a sentient being, we're obscuring our own pristine awareness. You can do one or the other, but you can't, do si- you can't be a Buddha and a sentient being at the same time from the same perspective. Now, you can be a wave or you can wa- be a particle, but you can't be a wave and a particle from the same perspective. So you have to choose. As long as you've turned on the engine of your mind and your sense of identity as a sentient being, you haven't turned on the engine of resting in Rigpa. You have not turned on the view of the Great Perfection. And so the non-meditation of Dzogchen necessarily entails not doing anything not doing anything, because our whole notion of doing anything is doing it as a sentient being. That's all we know. If I should say, you know, you know act like a hippop- hippopotamus, you won't know how. You'll do a, a human imitation of a hippopotamus, and the hippopotami would be probably cringing at the awful job you're doing. <laughs> you know, like when I try to do an Australian accent. The Australians, oh, please don't. <laughs> Let alone the French. Oh, the French start throwing things at me. Bien sûr, what's your problem? <laughs> so I can't do it. I can do an American imitation of a French answer, but I can't. I can't do it, right? And we can't imitate Buddha activity. We can pretend, but we can't really do it. Now we try. In stage regeneration, we try. We try. We use our imagination. We move into the realm of possibility. Okay, let's, but let's not stray. So we're going to go into the meditation. This means, though, that just don't activate anything from your samsaric mind, but that's the only mind you knew, you know about, unless you've realized Rigpa, in which case you don't need to listen to what I'm saying right now. That's, that's all we know about. So just stop doing everything you know about. 
If you throw the baby out with the bathwater, you will get rid of the bathwater. And that's what we need to do. We need to get rid of the bathwater of the perspective of a sentient being and the dualistic grasping of a sentient being and the activities, the effortful, goal-oriented activities of a sentient being. In fact, let's just throw out the sentient being. Not kill, but deactivate. Turn it off. Just turn it off. And so you're not doing anything as a sentient being, which means, now here's the, I think it's four. You ready? Yeah, this is more than you should memorize this if you want to practice. Don't do anything. No doing. No doing. Don't do anything at all. No striving. Don't try for anything. Don't desire anything. And don't fix anything. Juma meba. Chatewa. Meba meba. Otsuwa meba. Tene onchipote. Karasamane. So that's four. Okay? Don't do anything. No activity. Don't do anything. Don't desire anything. Don't strive for anything. And don't modify anything. Don't try to improve your mind. Don't try to develop better relaxation, stability, or clarity. That's fine for Jamata, but not for Dzogchen. Because Dzogchen, if you try that, that implies you're trying to fix something. But if you're a Buddha, you don't have to fix anything. So we are just stopping doing everything that is not from the perspective of Rikpa and what's left over. Rikpa may shine through. Okay. Now there are two, generally speaking, who knows how many approaches there are, but I'll speak of two approaches to actually engaging in bona fide Dzogchen meditation. And one is you go to an extraordinary master, a person like or I've heard only marvelous things about the, the, the young incarnation of Dujum Lingba. I've never met him, but he's quite young. And people I know, they've met him in Nepal, just blown away by him. Very young in that. But one friend of mine who is a um, you know, close disciple of Dujum Rinpoche says, oh, it's being in his presence. This is ancient wisdom shining through the eyes of this young man. That's what I hear. And from multiple people that I, I, I respect. And so, so happily, there are some young ones also. That's just one, and I I'm sure there are many more. So, but it's a qualified Dzogchen master, a person, he or she, who clearly has profound realization of Rigpa. You don't have to imagine it. You don't have to know it's there. It's there. And they do have that ability, okay? Qualified, right? So from such a person, you may receive pointing out instructions. The person says, I'm about to give this afternoon. I get pointing out instructions. And the person, using skillful means, trans transfers and it, you know, it's a called a mind transmission gives you pointing out instructions and when you receive it you will feel as if you've been given something as if something has been transmitted from mind to mind right is that literally the case and I can't imagine how that's literally the case because if it were literally the case imagine you know, imagine that I'm somebody high realized which I'm not but imagine that I'm, I'm very generous also so I say oh Claudia well, you like a mind to mind transmission sure <laughs> You know, and boom, then she has realization of Rigpa. But if one could do that, then everybody, mm, and I'm just going to walk around, I'm going to go by the street, and I'm just going to, mm, and everybody go, ooh, people blissing out in both directions. I'm just going to zap everybody, and then I'm going to fly up an airplane, and I'm going to get a rocket ship and go into outer space, and boom, you know, I'm going to blast the whole planet. If you can just give it, you'd give it to everybody. Then I'm going to look out on the rest of the galaxies, all hundred and billion of them, and I'm just going to go boom to all of them. 
you know, if you really could do that, then that's what the Buddhas would do. You know, they would just zap it to my baby, you know. <laughs> so I don't think that's the way it happens. You have to be ripe, of course. You have to be ripe. So it feels like you're actually getting something from outside, but that's from the perspective that you're inside. <laughs> that's from the perspective that you're actually located in your mind, you know, in where you are. So that's, but what I suspect, if we try to put that which is ineffable into words, what I suspect is that the Lama is going into, I'm just suspecting, fantasizing here, that the Lama is going into the realization of Rikva, speaking or acting, whether it's getting hit in the face with a sandal, or speaking, or pet, or anything. It, it, it's like a placebo effect. It doesn't have to be a substance, it doesn't have to be a word, it doesn't have to be, it's like a placebo effect. It can be really a gesture. You know, if a person has a certain disease and I say, well, here's the magical thing, is you don't need a, you don't need a sugar tablet, you don't need a, here it is, you ready for the placebo? You know, and that could be the placebo. It could be a mudra, right? I'm talking medicine here. I mean, this is literally true. You don't need a sugar tablet, for heaven's sake, because that has no, no power, obviously. It could be om, it could be a mudra, it could be Harvard, you know, anything that, <laughs> this will definitely help you. That's it. Your placebo is your name tag. Harvard Medical School. MD. That, that's your placebo. You don't have to eat my tag. Just, you know, that's it. So it's something like that, right? It's something like that. Finding the right way to point out, to convey information, because that's what it is. You're being informed. Here's Hosa. Uh, Kimberly, if you don't know who Hosa, this is Hosa right here. I'm pointing out that's giving you information, and then now you recognize her. That's what the Lama's doing. So that's one way. For that, you need a really realized Lama. Or a lot of faith in a tape recorder. <laughs> or a lot of faith in a retired California hippie. You know, whatever works, you know. That's one way, but it's not the only way. It's not the only way. And that is the other way is just do the practice. Just do the practice. So that's what we're going to do right now. But when I think of you know people like Geshe Rapten and Genlam Rimba and Gen Chamawondu, unbelievable. You have, I haven't spoken of him much, but he's one of my lamas. He's unbelievable. He passed away quite young. He, he was so Saint Francis of Assisi to his body. I mean, he. Oh, I could go on, but our time is so short. But incredible yogis, that I have been blessed, incredibly blessed. I mean, twenty years, thirty years of retreat. And Gen Chamba Wang Yudinia Metal Julen Dubsas. Dubsas Dao Mambodesu. He Gen Chamba Wandu lived on the flower flower essence pills. He accomplished it. Lived on it, just taking these little flower essence pills and no food. That's the kind of yogi he was. Yeah. Those people incredible. Those people truly Samgime Kappa. Your mind cannot encompass them. My mind cannot encompass them. So what am why am I going there? Ah. Such people are a little bit hard to find. You know, a lot of people teach Dzogchen. Not so many, I think, really have that ability. So, then you have this other option. Get it from an ordinary guy, you know, who's had wonderful teachers. That's what, that's what I can say. Ordinary guy, but my teachers have been spectacular. That's true, I'm just trying to be trained. Just honest. I don't even know what the word humble really means. But I think I have some idea what honesty is. So that's what I try to give. Just trying to be honest. 
But for the likes, of, when I think of Genshama Wondu, and I think of Yandanamoji, who spent 20 years in concentration camp and comes out like he just came out of a picnic, you know. I think of these people, and then I think of people, myself, and then like myself, you know, like sissies, like sissies, you know, I don't mean to put us down, but I'm, I'm talking about myself, like a sissy, compared to them, I'm a sissy. So I have a special approach to Dzogchen, Dzogchen for sissies. Sissies are local, local mengero, local mense. <laughs> so what do I mean by that? Sissies are children who go out into the Mediterranean Sea, which has a lot of salt water. I've been in the Adriatic, off the coast of Yugoslavia. And if you know that it's high salt water, you can lie on your back and you float. You don't have to do anything. You just lie on the back and you float, because it's salt water, so, so dense. And so... If you're a child, though, you don't really believe that because you put your hand in the, in the water and like, I'm going to sink, I'm going to sink. Okay? So take a child out in the Mediterranean, nice warm beach, no waves. You know, it's a Mediterranean. By California standard, we regard the Mediterranean as a wimpy, a wimpy sea. You know? We have waves in California. We have 80-foot waves. Show me that Mediterranean. <laughs> so in any case, you take a child out in the Mediterranean and you know the Mediterranean, you've, you've sw swum in it, you've you lie on your back and see you're floating, but the child doesn't believe that. So what do you do? You give the child something to hold on to. And say, now just hold on to that and kick and swim and kick and swim. And You see, it's not scary because you have something to hold on to. And then well, let go of it for a moment and, and see what happens. And the child doesn't, and then holds back. Let go of it again moment. And then after a while says, oh, but I'm not sinking. Well, then what do I need that for? And then just floats. Okay? When you go into this practice, for that matter, when you go into shamatha without a sign, it's very easy to, to fear, to fear, I'm going to sink. I'm going to lose something I cherish, um, me, my sense of identity, and I may not get it back. And what would I do then? And so, I'll, so Dzogchen for sissies, I'll give you something to hold on to for a while until you don't need it. Find a comfortable position. Our first step is to step into the pleasantly cool waters with the firm sand beneath us, welcoming, refreshing, calming, soothing, pleasant on a hot day. Settle your body, speech and mind in the natural state and for just a short time, relax deeply with every outbreath as you practice mindfulness of breathing, releasing and releasing with every outbreath.
with every outbreath, do just a little bit. Do something, but very little, and that is just release any thoughts, memories, images that may have come to mind with every outbreath. Let them go. It takes very little effort, but just a little, to let them dissolve into the space of the mind. Now let your eyes be open, your gaze utterly at rest, evenly distributed in the visual field, the space in front of you, but without focusing even on space, just resting at ease, with no object, wide awake. Do not direct your attention outwards to any of this, any of the five fields. Not to vision or sound. Don't direct your attention out, even to the space of the mind, to the appearances that arise to you within that sixth domain. Do not focus on any appearances. Do not objectify any appearances. Certainly do not label any appearances. Be at rest. But our experience consists not only of appearances arising to awareness, but also variations of these subjective impulses of the mind, of joy, of sorrow, of hope, of fear, mental afflictions and virtuous states. Whatever arises subjectively, inwardly, so relax, be so at ease, so loose, 
you do not grasp to or identify with any of these surges, these impulses from within. Be aware of them. But without being moved by them, without grasping to them, without identifying with them. So whether appearances arising in space or emergences from the mind, attend to them equally. Let them equally arise in the space of awareness without grasping. Do not direct your attention inwards. Do not direct your attention outwards. Do not do anything. Rest in the immediacy of the present moment. Let that be sufficient. Do not strive for anything. Do not desire anything. Be free of desire. And whatever arises, either in terms of appearances to your awareness or these objective impulses or even to consciousness itself, do not seek to modify, improve, purify, anything. Totally let it be without modification. Just rest. But now I said this would be Dzogchen for sissies. It's hard. We're not accustomed to it. It's not complex, it's not strenuous, but it's not easy. To simply rest doing nothing with no desire, effort, or modification. So I'll give you something to hold on to as if with your little finger. No tight grasp, no muscles, just with your little finger. Something to hold to. As you're resting there, you're allowed to be deliberately 
but ever so peripherally aware of the fluctuations in this field of experience that you know to be the fluctuations of the breath. So go ahead, hold on to that for a while. Just a point of reference so you don't feel lost. So that's all you do, but peripherally, with no desire, hardly any effort, hardly any modification, minimal, and now just rest. Ninety-five percent Just rest. And as Yandanabhaji said, here's how you rest. Without being distracted by any appearances, without grasping onto anything in here. When you lose your mindfulness and you're caught up and carried away, it's not that you're doing the practice incorrectly. You're not doing it at all. So stop that. Don't fix it. Just stop grasping. Release the distraction during which you weren't practicing at all. And once you've stopped doing anything, that's the practice. The practice of non-meditation.
This practice is simple. If you're doing something, if you're spacing out, or you're distracted, that's not the meditation. It's not doing it poorly. It's not doing it at all. And if you're simply resting in the natural luminosity of your own awareness, without doing anything, without desiring, striving, or modifying anything, that's a practice. So whenever you see that you're not doing the practice, Stop doing that, whatever it is. It's not modifying the mind, it's just stop doing that. And in the total deactivation of your sentient being's mind, what's left is non-meditation. And that's where pristine awareness sees its own face. It's all that's left. When you can truly rest your awareness in comfort and in ease, fearlessly, without doing, without desiring, striving, or modifying, then there's no reason to hold onto the breath even with one finger. Why do that? You're floating. There's nothing to fear.
What about thoughts? Don't block them. Don't identify with them. Let them be. Without even focusing on them as objects, let them be. And continue resting your awareness in an unmodified state with no object, no vector, no directionality, no subject or object. Well, Nassau, we had a big crossing of the continental divide from Shamatha to Vipassana, right? From the retreat to an expedition. We just crossed the continental divide, and now we're about to go up. Escape velocity out of the gravitational field. It's entirely different. It's not terrestrial anymore. It's identification. It's pointing out. Motupa means you've heard pointing out instruction. Well, it's identifying. That's hosa. That's emi. That's identification. Something very ordinary. 
but in rather than pointing to someone as an object, Kamachamarambuche is pointing out to us who we are, our own awareness. And the only the only awareness that can ascertain pristine awareness is pristine awareness. Not your mind and not substrate consciousness. They're not up to it. So don't even try. So we go. Here it is. You ready? Homage to Avalokiteshvara. These are the profound practical instructions of Avalokiteshvara, identifying the ultimate reality of your own mind. That's Chitata. Remember that? Chitata, the ultimate reality of your own mind as Mahamudra. If you're wondering what is Mahamudra, that's it. Ultimate reality of your mind. It is Rikpa. Mahamudra is Rikpa. That is Dzogchen as the fundamental breakthrough. Okay, familiar. Breakthrough, cutting through, cutting through your mind, cutting through more deeply. The deep cut is cutting through your substrate consciousness. That's the deep cut. Shamata cuts through your coarse mind, big deal. Right? Okay, that's nice, but you haven't even taken one step outside of samsara. Not even one on the path. So here we go. So now, fasten your meditation belts. We're about to take over liftoff. <coughs> the Sutra of Cultivating Faith in the Mahayana states, Child of the family, a bodhisattva who has achieved samadhi does not regard mere shamatha and the taste of samadhi as being enough. Rather, while remaining in samadhi, one calculates, evaluates, analyzes, and investigates the Mahayana dharmas, and by calculating and evaluating, analyzing and investigating them, vipassana arises. Okay. So Mahayana dharmas, especially perfection of wisdom, the middle way view. The great mound of jewel sutra states, Kashyapa, the mind is not found by seeking it. So clearly he's dovetailing the vipassana. He's making smooth transition. Because seeking, seeking, that's vipassana, right? So he's making a smooth transition. Kashyapa, the mind is not found by seeking it. Whatever is unfindable is unobservable. Whatever is unobservable does not occur in the past, nor in the future, nor in the present. Very briefly, scientifically, if somebody raises a hypothesis, maybe there are tachyons, theoretical construct. A tachyon is a particle that travels only faster than the speed of light. Okay? It's hypothetically possible, according to Einstein's relativity theory. It's not possible for something to go faster, 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 get to the speed of light, and then continue going faster. That's not possible, not in relativity theory. But there could be, in principle, particles that travel only faster than light. Okay? Called a tachyon. It's a name. It's a name for something that nobody's ever observed. So therefore the scientists say, well, it's a word with no referent. Because we've never measured it, we've never found it. And so it's a word, it's an empty word. So the word mind. Have you ever found the referent? If not, why do you think it's any more real than a tachyon? 
the Tantra of the Full Enlightenment Avarochana extensively explains, Lord of Secrets, he's referring to Vajrapani, the embodiment of the Buddhas, the power of the Buddha mind. Lord of Secrets, how is one's own mind to be known? Whether one seeks out the mind as an image, a color, a shape, an object, a form, a feeling, a recognition, a mental formation as consciousness. He just went through the five skandhas. If you, if that would be a good place to look. Maybe your mind's among your five skandhas. Whether you seek the mind out as I, as mine, as something apprehended, as an apprehender, as pure, impure, as an element, like earth, water, fire, the 18 elements, you remember those? 18 datus. As a sense base, the 12 ayatanas, or in any other way, it is non-objectifiable, unfindable, as unfindable as a tachyon. You can't find it. You can't discover it. You can't point to it. Gotcha! You can't write a paper about it. You can't get tenure. Nagarjuna states in a commentary to Bodhicitta, commentary on Bodhicitta, very famous commentary, the mind is a mere label it is nothing more than a, a label. The name. So let's play with this just a little bit. It's a name. Right? Mind. It's kind of like, yeah, well, mind is a name. <laughs> it's, kind of, it's kind of obvious, right? Mind is a name. So let's play a little game here. Uh, all of you in this room now are going to have one of two names. Okay? Um, Claudia or not Claudia? You only get, for the time being, you only get two choices. That's your name. Okay? So let's just do this a little bit. Who are you? You have two choices. Not Claudia. Thank you. Not Claudia. Not Claudia. Not Claudia. Hmm. Hmm. Good. So each of you gave me a bit of information. You gave me a label. Her name is not Claudia, not Claudia, not Claudia, and her name is Claudia. But they all gave me a, one bit of information, one point, one little bibi, one little nugget, one bit. Not Claudia, not Claudia, not Claudia, and we do that a lot. Well, you know, like that boxer that gave all of his sons the name, same name, George. Remember that one? <laughs> Had a whole bunch of sons. He gave, I think he called them all George, didn't he? Okay, you're all called not Claudia. You're my kids. <laughs> Hello, not Claudia. <laughs> but one gets named Claudia, okay? That could be your name. Why not? You could be John. You can also be not Claudia. Not many people are called not Claudia. It's quite a rather distinctive until you're in this room. But hold that thought that each of you gave me one bit of information. Just one bit. There was not complicated. Who are you? Not Claudia. Okay? I got one thing out of that. I don't know anything more about her. Because that's all she gave me. Not Claudia. But that's something. And then Claudia. That's something. I don't know anything more about Claudia than that. If that's all she told me. But that's one bit. But that bit separates you from everything else. So let's hold that thought. We'll come back to it. That's one bit of information. A label, a name, is a bit of information. Very simple. 
Now, of course, we can start compounding. Uh, are you a German, not Claudia? Or are you an Australian, not Claudia? And then you can give me a bit more. Okay, we can always add more, but I wanted to keep it real simple. So we have three people here named not Claudia. The rest of you are undifferentiated. And then we have one Claudia, okay? Recognize awareness, awareness. He said, not only the mind recognize awareness as a mere label, but and what else would awareness be? Awareness, it's a label. Hello, Fred, it's a label. Hello, mind, mind, label. Awareness, label, that's all it is. Recognize awareness as a mere label. Moreover, a label has no intrinsic nature. It has no, just that. It doesn't exist from its own side. These are a label, a name, is something that exists only relative to someone who understands what the name is referring to. And that one is not Claudia. But not by itself. It needs somebody to recognize. You recognize not Claudia. I recognize not Claudia. But somebody has to recognize not Claudia. Otherwise, not Claudia is not a label. It's <laughs> an inarticulate sound. We've heard about those. The end of philosophy, right? But isn't even a pig. It's a noise, but it's not a label. Right? We're getting close to the bone here. The genus, the enlightened ones, the victorious ones, do not find it, that is, this mind, the Buddhas themselves, who are omniscient, do not find it inside, nor outside, nor in between those two. Thus the mind is of the nature of an apparition, and the nature of the mind, that is, it appears, and there's nothing to it. There's nothing there. It appears, and that's it. There's, it appears, and there's nothing there. An apparition, a reflection in a mirror, a rainbow. It, and there's nothing there. It's just an appearance with no reference, nothing behind it, no substance, nothing there. That's what it means, nothing there, which means it has no intrinsic nature. The mind is of the nature of an apparition, and the nature of the mind does not exist as any type of color or shape, as something apprehended or as an apprehender. The mind does not exist as an apprehender, not findable. It does not exist as a man, a woman, or a neuter, and so forth. In short, the Buddhas have not seen it, and they will not see it. They accurately see it as having the nature of being without an intrinsic nature. Pamoduva, the great Gayuva master, says, when the mind is active, you remember the meditation we just did, right? Deactivate your mind. The only one you know about is your sentient being mind. Well, deactivate that. When the mind is active, there's, there is samsara. The mind brings forth samsara. The mind creates samsara. The mind is the all-creating sovereign of samsara. It's your samsara. Nobody else did it to you. When the mind is active, there is samsara, and when the mind is devoid of activity, there is liberation. But it's primordial liberation, because when the mind is inactive, you don't go unconscious. He's speaking about coarse mind and subtle mind. When they are turned off, all that's left is rikpa. That doesn't need to be freed, that's primordially freed. Without severing the root of the mind, and that is all reification, all grasping to the mind. 
without severing the root of the mind, the root of delusion is not cut. So first sever the root of the mind. The great Brahman Saraha, great Mahasiddha, Mahamudra Master par excellence, he states, my son, look, observe your own mind. The mind is not verified by observation. How amazing that this unestablished ultimate reality of the mind appears in myriad ways. Your own conate mind is the Dharmakaya, and the Dharmakaya is without birth or destruction. How amazing that this embodiment of unborn great bliss is present within you. In the Dharmakaya mirror of your own mind, non-dual primordial consciousness arises as luminosity. From the moment it arises, it is unestablished, and it is conate great bliss. Again, Kamachamara mm, is being hyper-generous here, because he could just write his own prose. He could say, look, I just spent 13 years, whatever it was, in retreat. I know what I'm talking about. Here, folks, here's, here's what's happening. He could just he could write it himself. And instead, he's quoting the Buddha, he's quoting Nagarjuna, Pamodupa, Saraha, Tilopa. He's once again, with this incredible generosity, giving us a bouquet. And any one of these flowers is a pointing out instruction. Right now, you're getting the pointing out instruction from Tilopa, from Saraha, from Pamodupa, from Nagarjuna. They're all giving point out instruction. All right. So Tilopa, if Saraha didn't quite stri strike the target, here's Tulopa. And listening again to Yantanabhachi this afternoon, no, it was this morning, he's saying, you have to hear it again and again and again. You have to hear it with a slightly different phrasing, nuance, perspective. You have to hear it again and again and again and again and again. You have to take that Coke bottle of your mind and keep on dropping it and dropping it and dropping it. And to finally all reification and grasping shatters. But you'll probably have to hear it many times. And every time you hear it, try to hear it as if for the first time, and your Coke bottle might shatter. You know what the Coke bottle is? That youthful boss body. <laughs> Nowadays they call it a Coke bottle. That youthful bottle, it has to shatter. Right? So he's giving another pointing out instructions. Here's Tulopa. We're having a, a, a whole array of invited guests tonight. We brought in the Buddha, the Buddha spoke, then we had Nagarjuna. I mean, you should feel very privileged. Nagarjuna visited you this afternoon. And then Pamudupa, one of the greatest of the Kaikupa masters. And then Saraha just dropped in. Because where their voice is, these are enlightened beings, so where their voice is, if you're speaking of the voice, the speech of an enlightened being, that's where the enlightened being is. They don't separate. You can't take the speech of a Buddha and leave the Buddha's mind behind. If it's a speech of the Buddha, the Buddha's mind has to be there. So wherever Saraha's speech is, Saraha's mind is. And that means that's where Saraha is. So we just had a guest, a guest visitor. We just gave you pointing out instructions. Thank you, Saraha. You may leave. Tilopa, please come. So here's Tilopa. It's Tilopa's speech. Tilopa's speech is indivisible from Tilopa's mind and his body. So where one goes, the other go. That's the nature of being enlightened being. Hey! <laughs> He's Indian. Hey? 
This self-knowing primordial con- this is self-knowing primordial consciousness. It is beyond articulation, and it is not experience, not an experienced object of the mind. It is nothing that can be demonstrated by me, Tilopa. Know it by letting your own self-awareness indicate itself. Indicate means point out, identify. The Sutra, 33 questions. Now we get the Buddha. If, if Tilopa wasn't enough for you, now we have the Buddha giving you pointing out instructions. All the three worlds, this is the desire realm, form realm, formless realms, all the three worlds have arisen from the mind. The whole universe, even universes that, you know, dimensions that modern science isn't aware of. Form realm, formless realm. They try to make inferences by mathematics and so forth, but hard to say they have direct experience. Maybe they do. But in Buddhism, yeah, this is... This is, these are realized. All the three worlds have arisen from the mind, but that very mind is not something demonstrable as this. So it creates everything, and then you look for it, and not, not to be found. Without form and ethically neutral, it's like an apparition. The wise seek the ultimate reality of the mind. And when they seek the ultimate reality of the mind, the mind and the ultimate reality of the mind are not to be seen. With whatever mind the mind is sought, the intrinsic nature of the mind is not seen. There's that statement, I can only paraphrase it because I didn't memorize it, quoted all over the place, allegedly by Einstein, and I I couldn't find the source. Maybe I just haven't, maybe I haven't looked hard enough. Because I can't, dis- I cannot say I discovered that there was no source. I could just say I checked out for ten or fifteen minutes trying to find a source of this very famous statement. And I couldn't find it, quoted all over the place, and no, not Wikipedia. Nobody gave me a source, so I don't know whether he said it or not. So you see, I just don't know. The phrasing basically, the mind that created the problem is not the mind that can find the solution, something like that. The dualistic mind that created the problem of samsara is not capable of releasing itself from samsara. You have to step outside the dualistic mind. It has to be turned off. It's incredibly clever, but all it does is just spin more webs for itself to get caught in. The tantra of the full enlightenment of Arochana states, even the Tathagatas have not seen, do not see, and will not see the mind. It is not a color, it does not appear as shapes, and it is not male, female, or neuter. Again, Nagarjuna's commentary on the spirit of awakening, or Bodhicitta says, the jinas do not find the mind inside or outside or between the two. The same text states, the mind is just a label. So look upon it as a mere label. Moreover, a label has no intrinsic nature. If it did, then it would exist independently of anybody being aware of it. But then it wouldn't be a label, it would be a noise. But then would it be a noise if nobody hears it? So no, even a noise doesn't have an intrinsic nature, let alone a label or mind. It has no intrinsic nature, so the mind is of the nature of an apparition. The Sutra of the Questions of Kashyapa states, Kashyapa, the mind does not exist inside nor outside, nor is it observed between the two. Kashyapa, the mind is unanalyzable. 
It does not stand up to analysis. You cannot find it through analysis. It's undemonstrable. You can't point to it. Non-appearing, unknowable. Unknowable as an object of the mind and without location. Kashyapa is even the Buddhas have not seen, do not see, and will not see the mind. Kashyapa, even if the mind is sought, it is unfindable. Whatever is unfindable is unobservable. Whatever is unobservable does not arise in the past, in the future, or in the present. The questions, the sutra of the questions of Maitreya states, Maitreya asked, how shall one observe the inner mind? And the Buddha replied, the mind is without shape, without color, without location, and is like space. Shantideva, in the Guide to the Bodhisattva Way of Life, says the protector of the world stated that the mind does not perceive the mind, just as the sword does not cut itself, so it is with the mind. And the condensed perfection of wisdom states, not seeing form, not seeing feelings, these are the five skandhas again, not seeing form, not seeing feelings, not seeing recognition, not seeing mental formations, and not seeing consciousness. The mind or cognition anywhere. The Tathagata indicates that such a person sees reality. In the non-objectification of anything, then you see dharmata. <coughs> then you see ultimate reality. So that was a choir. That was a choir, multiple voices harmonizing, singing in the same tune, but with different cadence, with different different phrasing. So the whole notion, let's linger here. The mind is a label. The mind, therefore, is a bit of information, right? Isn't that what a label is? Not Claudia, not Claudia. This is binary. This is code, right? Zero, 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 one, right? That's what information is. It's kind of yes, no, yes, no. Very briefly, in Buddhist epistemology, it's quite interesting. There's Dubjuk and Seljuk. I remember this from 40 years ago. <laughs> it's funny things one remembers. But when I was studying Buddhist epistemology, I think it was in Switzerland. Hmm. Our perception engages an object by just encountering it. Dubjuk. Juk means to encounter, to engage, and dub is it's there. So I'm looking at the appearance of Rhonda's face, visually and mentally, and whoosh, got it. I don't have to look at anything else, just, whoo, there it is. It's just there. It's a presence, right? It's a presence. Whereas, <coughs> here's, here's a very interesting hypothesis. I think it's true based upon my experience, but who knows? But it's a very interesting hypothesis. Because I was just looking, right? That, that is, without having to say or think, Rhonda's face, Rhonda's face. No, never mind that. It's just encountering the appearance, straight perception, non-conceptual, direct encounter, appearance, boom. I look, boom. Before any labeling, association, conceptual, never, boom, just that, in your face, right? Likewise, the smell of a rose, the sound of music, and so forth and so on, boom, you get it. But now, if I'm wondering, is Rhonda here or not? And here's the hypothesis, well, really briefly, this is really deep and would be worth spending an afternoon on, but we can't. If I ask myself, is Rhonda here? The way the conceptual mind identifies Rhonda is called Seljuk. Dubchuk and Seljuk. Remember, so long ago I studied that. So interesting. But it was interesting, so it stuck. 
Cell, cell means dispelling. It's I identify Rhonda when I recognize, now this is conceptual mind, embedded in labels and concepts and cutting up reality in little choppy bits, right? How do I identify Rhonda's face? That which is not anything else. So Rhonda's face, okay, Rhonda I know is a woman, face, I know what a face is, opposed to a chest or a kneecap or a watermelon. And so, nothing else, Rhonda's face. Process of elimination. What you're left with when you're identifying something conceptual, conceptually is that which is not anything other than. Okay? But conceptualization, labeling, conceptual designation, verbal designation is all about information. A thought, Rhonda's face, that's information. Not Claudia, that's information. And the fundamental premise here in the Madhyamaka, which is the foundation, the, the philosophical foundation for the Dzogchen and the Mahamudra, is that phenomena come into existence solely by the power of conceptual designation, and that's information. It's information transfer. That's Rhonda's face. Without the conceptual designation, nothing. The conceptual designation is primary. No conceptualization, nothing. Again, Lamrima told me, who'd spent years meditating on emptiness, he said, when you're meditating on emptiness and your conceptual designation cease, you go into a non-conceptual mode, even with your eyes wide open, not withdrawn from appearances, your ears open, eyes open, everything open, and you're probing in nature of reality and you go into totally non-conceptual mode, from your perspective, the world disappears. No objects. No objects. Not for you. No conceptual designation from your mind, no world for your mind. Conceptual, conceptual designation. Information processing. That's what it is, isn't it? I mean, conceptual designation that may find itself in articulation. That's primary. That's primary. Not mind. Mind is a label. You remember? Mind is a label. Mind's derivative. And not matter, for heaven's sakes. That's a label. Energy's a label. Space, time, label. So what's fundamental here? Not mind, not matter. The labeling. The information. That's primary. Transparent, isn't it? Okay. Now let's see if we can find anybody else who says that. Here are two physicists. I don't know one of them, and I don't even know how to pronounce his name, his first name. It's Polish, I believe. C with a little mark over it. And I don't know what that is. Saslav, Shaslav, but the last name is Brukna. Anybody know Polish? Okay. That, not pro but his last name. Ah. C with a little hat on top. A-S-L-A-V. Shaslav? Doesn't matter. Brukna. Okay. Shaslav? Cheslav, thank you. But Bruckner is pretty easy. Bruckner, and then my, uh, my friend, wonderful physicist, really very enjoyable human being, Anton Seilinger, world-class, absolutely world-class experimental physicist, at the top of the mountain when it comes to really exploring the foundations of quantum mechanics. So the two of them wrote a paper together, and here's what they wrote. Okay, two world-class guys. In quantum physics, the notion of the total information of the system, any system, universe, 
system that you create in your laboratory, any system. The notion of the total information of the system emerges as the primary concept. That's fundamental. The information. Everything you know about it, that's primary. Not atoms, particles, space, time, energy, not that. What is fundamental is the total information about this system. That's fundamental. As the primary concept independent of the particular complete set of complementary experimental procedures the observer might choose. That is, you may choose to investigate that system in a myriad of ways. That's all secondary. What's primary is the information. And a property, like there's an electron, it has a charge, there's a proton, it has mass, there's a photon, it has speed, those are properties, right? Properties of elements of the system. A property becomes a secondary concept. Information's primary. The properties of anything in the system is a secondary concept. A specific representation of the information is a representation, an effulgence, a creative display of the information. It's emergent from the information. It is a specific representation of the information of the system that is created spontaneously in the measurement itself. Okay? That should catch our attention. Now, my hero, John Archibald Wheeler. Long life, from 1911 to 2008, 97 years old. This was his breathtaking crossing of a threshold from quantum mechanics that seemed local and usually a little quantum system to that revolution turning it around and seeing the entire universe as a quantum system. Okay? And he's world-class. He's right there with Richard Feynman. Never got a Nobel Prize. It was odd, but he was right there. Richard Feynman on the west coast of America, John Wheeler on the, right, on the, on the east coast. Two pillars. In his view with his quantum cosmology, the universe consists of a strange loop in which physics, you'll have to listen to it very carefully, it's, it's subtle, not complicated. The universe consists of a strange loop. There are various strange loops, like 12 links of dependent origination. <laughs> That's a strange loop. This is a strange loop. This is physics, straight physics. The universe consists of a strange loop in which physics gives rise to observers. Physics, that is, Ask any biologist, any chemist, any geologist, any physicist. The universe has been around for 13.8 billion years, the planet for 5 billion years, life on the planet, 3.5 billion years. Conscious life we don't really know, but human humans, homo sapiens sapiens, our species, about 200,000 years. Okay, 200,000 versus 13.8 billion years, okay, big difference, right? We're a little, little comma, or a little footnote after 13.8 billion years, right? So physics, the physical world, gives rise to observers. Almost any scientist would say that. Right? Universe was here a long, long, long time before human beings. Right? We all believe that, don't we? Okay, so physics gives rise to observers. That's good. But this is a strange loop in which physics gives rise to observers and observers give rise to at least part of physics. That is, if there are no observers, there wouldn't be any physics. That sounds obvious, but it's profoundly true. If there were no observers, nobody performing any measurements, no mathematics, nobody doing physics, no observers, there wouldn't be any physics. That's just a true statement. 
But if, according to the modern scientific worldview, if there weren't physics, a physical world there for 13.8 billion years before we came along, there wouldn't be any observers, not anything like us anyway. So we continue with this. This is a quote from, which one was it? I think Mind and the Balance, one of my books, but it's, but it's him. The, this is John Wheeler. There's no Alan Wallace here at all. The conventional view of the relationship between observers and the objective world is that, the conventional view, what almost all scientists believe, Conventional view, mainstream, what you'll find in every media outlet, Scientific American, New York Times, etc., etc. What's a conventional view? Okay. Of the relationship between observers and the objective world is that matter, matter, atoms, molecules, cells, neurons, matter yields information. You get information from matter. You make a measurement, matter gives you some information is that matter yields information, and information makes it possible for observers to be aware of matter by way of measurements, which could be depicted as follows. Matter yields, there's, a, there's an arrow here, matter yields information from information, space, time, matter, energy, particles, waves. From that you, you give, gives rise to information and information gives rise to observers. You can't be an observer without having something to observe. And what you observe is information, whether it's a visual image, whether it's a, a computer readout, whether it's zeros and ones. But you can't be an observer. You can't be a physicist. You can't be an observer unless you have something to observe. So you've got matter, good, bedrock. Matter yields information. Information then makes it possible for somebody to be aware of that information and so from matter comes information, from information comes the observer. That's standard. That's in almost any scientific journal, popular or professional. That's how it is, right? That's the conventional. You ready for the revolution? Wheeler, on the contrary, proposes that the presence of observers makes it possible for information to arise. Well, that's just got to be true. If you have no observer, then it's... It's no information. There are no words, there are no labels, there are no reference. You've got to have an observer that knows there's a difference between non-Claudia and And only an observer. A computer won't know. A computer will not know that one of those refers to something and the other one doesn't. A robot wouldn't know. You've got to be conscious and to know not Claudia refers to somebody. A lot of people were doesn't. But that's not a physical measurement. You can't measure not Claudia and that and detect physically which one is information, which one's not. There is no physical instrument that can listen to a sound, detect a sound, measure a sound, and tell you, this one has a referent. That one doesn't have a referent. You need a conscious observer for that. So observers give rise to information. This makes my heart beat to see such brilliance. Really, it does. I just, I'm. <sighs> he proposes that the presence of observers makes it possible for information to arise, for there is no information without someone who is informed. Thus, matter is a category constructed out of information. You'd know nothing about matter except by way of information. Appearances. Whether it's driving into a tree when you fall asleep and you die, 
there was information. There was an appearance. That's information. If there's no consciousness, there's no death, there's no accident, there's no collision, there's nothing. And he's an observer. Thus, matter is a category constructed out of information, and Wheeler inverts the sequence. Observers give rise to information. Information gives rise to matter. But of course, there's no observer without information. There's no information without an observer. There's no matter without information about matter. But there's no information about matter without matter. And information is primary. Information is that which designates the observer, the information, and matter. Information is primary to the entire universe. So what does that have to say? Oh, we're doing so well with time. Does this sound anything reminiscent to what you've been hearing from Nagarjuna? That matter is a label. The observer is a label. A label is a label. Information is a label. And labels don't exist without an observer. But the observer is a label. It's labels all the way up and all the way down. To quote the Prajnaparamita, nothing from elementary particles up to the omniscient mind of the Buddha has an intrinsic nature. They all exist only as labels. The mind of the Buddha is a label. Even the Buddha can't see the mind of the Buddha as an object, as something real, something demonstrable, something to point to. He said it several times. Of the past, the present, the future, omniscient ones, if they ever get better, the future ones won't, be, won't get it either. Even they don't see the mind. But then he brought in that punchline. As the mind is un unobservable, so is form and feeling and recognition and mental formations in consciousness. Everything finally, in itself, unfindable. But the place to start in this Mahamudra is not to start with form or atoms or space or time. If you're in a hurry, that's the way to get firewood by clipping each branch by one by one. That could take you 400 years to clip all the branches from Galileo until John Wheeler. That could take a long time to get firewood, dry wood. Whereas if you initially go to the mind, if Galileo, if his dad had paid for him to stay in the monastery, <laughs> and he took a pre-existing technology he hopped on a boat and traveled to India and got the pre-existing technology of samadhi and then came back home and directed that telescope into his own mind. The Galilean revolution would have been very different. But he directed outwards and it's taken us 400 years. What does this have to do about the past? Keep on coming back to 13.8 billion years of what really happened, right? Long, long time ago. 
Big Bang. You remember? Melted universe. You remember that? Like water? Undifferentiated? Perfect? You remember? Steven Weinberg? A perfection? For which the symmetry is broken and broken and broken and broken and broken again until finally you just have this crystallized, chunky world of this is that's Everything chunky, 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 everything crystallized, everything bifurcated, chopped up and frozen. Right. And it took 13.8 billion years to get to the chunky, crystallized version we have now, right? Our planet, our big, big chunky planet, big chunky planet, we've all seen. Chunky, chunky, hard, full, heavy, right? Five billion year old planet, right? So that's the story, right? That's the real story, isn't it? That's what really happened, right? Well, ask almost any scientist. You say, yeah, yeah, that's, that's it. We've learned a lot in 400 years. That's what really happened. It's 13.8 billion years, 5 billion years, 100 billion galaxies, yeah, we're really, we're pressing in, we're, we're getting the real picture here. This is what really happened. Unless you study 20th century physics, in which case you might want to pause right now and read John Wheeler again. And I quote him now. It is wrong to think of that past, the story I just told you, the 13.8 billion year old magnificent story. It's brilliant story. It's empirically based story. It's sophisticated. It's rigorous. It has mathematics all the way through it. It's a great story. But John Wheeler says, it is wrong to think of that past, that past that you'll find in any cosmology textbook, any evolutionary biology textbook, from single-celled organism, mutation, mutation, adaptation, the whole story. I mean, it's a really good story. It's kind of like, unless you're religious and you have a belief system, it's the only story. Because you have scientists deal with facts, right? And then religious people, well, we have beliefs. Some people have Muslim beliefs, some have Christian beliefs, Buddhist beliefs, Jewish beliefs. And you study them in the religious studies department in university. And where I taught, the dean of the Department of Humanities, the School of Humanities, and you know what's in there, art, and music, and philosophy, and religious studies. Not where the scientists are. They have their own building. They're serious. But we people, we touchy-feely people who are into our subjective stuff, poetry and music and art and philosophy, poetry, did I say religious studies? <laughs> he said, and the, the, the dean of the School of Humanity said, our approach to religious studies is non-religious. Oddly enough, I didn't get tenure there. That is, of course, we don't take that stuff seriously. That's why we can look you in the face as academics and you can know that we're serious. Chemistry, real. Music, you can love music. History, you like history? Good, you can like history. But one of my students there, straight-A student, really bright, he studied with me for a couple of years, graduated, and he wanted to come back because this is an outstanding, and it is an outstanding religious studies department. And he applied to the graduate program there, but he didn't show me it. He just applied. And he wrote about his love for Buddhism. That was the kiss of death.
you don't get, you don't get accepted. Their approach is non-religious. The last thing they want is an enthusiast that loves Buddhism. <laughs> that means, of course, they have no objectivity. They're going to hear something by the Buddha and they go, Ooh! Something by Muhammad, eh. Buddha, ah. Christianity, eh. They've lost all objectivity. They have no place in the university. Okay. So we have to be serious about this 13.8 billion year old story. I mean, that's serious. That's in the science, but that's not humanities. That's over there where they deal with reality. Reality that is independent of human subjectivity. The, the real world. That's what science is all about. It's objective science, free of bias, and objectively measuring what's really out there. Okay, what did John Wheeler get on with John? He says, I keep on interrupting. I'm sorry. <laughs> okay, John, here you go. He says, it is wrong to think of that past as already existing in all detail. The past is theory. The past has no existence except as it is recorded in the present. By deciding what questions our quantum registering equipment shall put in the present, by what questions shall we pose with our systems of measurement? We choose the questions. We choose the quantum measurement system. We choose that. By deciding what questions our quantum registering equipment shall put in the present, we have an undeniable choice in what we have the right to say about the past. Stephen Hawking, I didn't have the quote right here, but I think you've heard it before. He says, the past before you make a measurement exists in a superposition state. And that means it's in a state of potential only. It's not there. It's not carved in granite. It's not anywhere. The past arises, is measured only in the present, and it always arises relative to the questions you pose and the type of measurements you perform. And independently of your questions and independently of measurements, there is no past. It doesn't exist, even the great story of 13.8 billion years. Therefore, Stephen Hawking says, maybe I should quote it here, but I don't have it, but this is very close. He said, therefore, we, have it, we can choose which past. And it's not just our impression. It's not just our version. There is no real past, independent of perspective, independent of questions, independent of measurements, independent of conceptual designation, independent of information. There is no past at all. And therefore you can choose your past. Ask a good question, make a valid measurement, and you can come up with multiple histories, and each one is equally true, relevant, relative to the questioning and the mode of measurement. And no one trumps the other. No one's better than the other. You can make false measurements. Anybody can. But you can also make correct measurements. And here, light is a particle. Here, life is a wave. Light, prior to and independent of the measurements, does not exist at all. It's unknowable. In principle, therefore, do not attribute existence to it. Light doesn't exist independently of someone measuring it, as a particle or as a wave, or as a wavicle. <laughs> None of the above. So we'll end right on time. William James. 
everyone is, and I quote him verbatim, everyone is prone to claim that his conclusions are the only logical ones, that they are necessities of universal reason, they being all the while at bottom accidents, more or less of personal vision, which had far better be avowed as such. That's like a hundred years before John Wheeler. That's pretty insightful. That notion everyone is prone to claim that his conclusions, his version, his perspective are the only logical ones, the right one, the best one. In Buddhism, that's one of the fundamental forms of delusion. It's called in Tibetan, holding holding one's own view as supreme. The Christian view is supreme, it's the only way. Any other religion is the only way. Science as the only way. Buddhism as the only way. Dzogchen as the only way. It doesn't matter. It could be Schopenhauer, it could be Mickey Mouse, Mickey Mouseism, holding any view as supreme and uniquely valid is delusional. And that's one of the core delusions that lies at the root of suffering. So this is why in Prasangika Madhyamaka it said, we have no assertion and we have no view. You use the philosophy to transcend assertion, use philosophy to trans any view, and the view that's left over when you've abandoned all view is the middle way view, when you've transcended all conceptual elaboration, as he said, when the thinking mind is turned off. That means all conceptual elaboration, all views, all perspectives, from here or there, that's liberation, that's a great perfection, that's reality. So views can be useful as an instrument, but as soon as you grasp onto it as supreme, that's the end. A little introduction to the introduction, a little introduction to the identification. So you might want to read that more than once. (laughs) uh, that, That was a quite a bouquet he just gave us.